And so we have to understand and trust the process that as people are engaging with God and scripture, we still need to do that. And But being in the body of Christ, right, in the community, having these new experiences, that those are going to form and shape this implicit self. And at some point, there'll be shifts where things click. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hey everyone, I'm Ken Keithley. And I'm Nathaniel Williams. In today's episode, Dr. Keithley will talk with Dr. Todd Hall about relational spirituality. After that, we'll have another edition of On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines like news, sports, pop culture, or business, from a Christian perspective. And so in today's edition of Headlines, let's talk about sports. A few weeks ago, LSU defeated Iowa in the most-watched NCAA Women's Basketball Championship game ever. After the game, though, the conversation was less about the game and more about taunting, specifically taunting between Angel Reese and Caitlin Clark, two players on either team there in that national championship game. Dr. Quinn, let's talk about taunting a little bit. How should Christians feel about taunting in sports? Is it a normal part of the game? Or is it something we should push back against when we play sports as well? Trash talking has been part of the game of every sports game uh, since the beginning of time, as far as I can tell. And uh, first of all, if anyone didn't see this game between Iowa and LSU, uh, the girls' national championship, it was fantastic. Angel Reese and Caitlin Clark, they definitely kind of stole the show, not only in their in their play and even all the hype leading up to the game, but uh, Caitlin Clark, by the way, just throughout the year, if you haven't seen her play, she's phenomenal. Angel Reese um, had a, an outstanding game from LSU, but as you said, Nathaniel, what r- really stole the show was the whole taunting situation throughout. Uh, and this is not the only one. So that was a few weeks ago. Now, this week we're we're now in the first round of playoffs for the NBA. Uh, I saw where Russell Westbrook had a heckler from the crowd, and he chased him down in the tunnel. I don't know how, even how that happened, but there was a fan that apparently was just just trash talking a little too much. He chased him down and kind of gave him an earful about that. And my, my son's middle school baseball game in Bunn, North Carolina yesterday, there's a parent chiding an umpire. The umpire wasn't having any of it. It caused a little bit of a disturbance in the game. This is part of it. So the question then is, how do we think about it as Christians? Well, first of all, um, I think the most important thing is that the great commandment to love God and to love our neighbor is as active in sports, or at least it should be as active in sports as it is in any time. Sports as a competition, and competition in my view is not intrinsically bad. It actually helps us to strive together, which is part of the what the original word means, helps us to strive together unto the cultivation of virtue and the cultivation of that which is good and true and beautiful. So when it comes to opposing someone else within the structures of a game or maybe even sitting on the sidelines and being for or against a particular team, is it wrong to contribute with your words towards your opinion on these things? I don't think that it is intrinsically. The question, though, that I always want to use is or always want to ask is, am I actually loving my neighbor in this moment or am I not? And this is where we don't have to we don't have to sort of create these hard and fast black and white rules. You can say these words. You can't say these words. 
And especially given the fact that the, the meanings of those words will change and adapt over time. I remember my dad getting thrown out of one of my high school basketball games because he said something to a referee that in his mind and from where he was from didn't mean anything negative, but to that particular referee, it meant something different. My dad didn't even realize that he got thrown out of the game and didn't know why he got thrown out until after the game. So we have to be mindful of what those things are. Our words have meaning. They carry meaning. But at the end of the day, as Christians, whether we're talking to the other team, whether we are expressing ourselves by pointing at our ring finger, uh, which is what was going on the LSU game, put the ring on my finger and really kind of making making ugly gestures towards uh, the Iowa team. And that continued on even after the game in the in the media conversations and so on, whether it's something that we're saying, a gesture that we're making. Uh, can we do these things and are we saying things in such a way that actually compromises our love for our neighbor? Um, even if these people, even if we're playing against people who are not Christians, neighbor love still governs our behavior, still governs our actions, it governs our motives. How can I speak in such a way that I can, I'm, I might even, if I'm playing a pickup game or if I'm on the sidelines or whatever, I might poke or chide another player, maybe even a player on my own team. But I'm not going to do it in such a way as that tears them down. I always want to do it in such a way as that it's ultimately for their good. And I can stand before the Lord and say, you know what, the way that I carried myself, the way that I spoke, the things that I said were done in a spirit of I'm here to build you up. Sometimes you may not like what I've got to say about that, but I'm genuinely here to build you up. And, and I think we have to be honest with ourselves about those things. Now, Charles Barkley is not a good example at this. Um Michael Jordan in his heyday probably wasn't a great example. Even Larry Bird is supposedly the greatest trash talker of all time in the NBA. I, I don't know what all was said in those things, but we, we sort of laugh about those things. And those guys laugh about those things. Now, at the end of the day, as Christians, whether it's little league, big leagues, anything in between, whether you're a participant or on the sidelines, coach, umpire, referee, um, whatever we say in support of our team or toward a particular end, does it love and build up our neighbor or does it not? And let that be the rule that we follow. So it's not inappropriate then if I were to walk by and uh, point to two championship rings on my finger representative of Georgia's last two national championship games. That that wouldn't be too offensive to you if I were to do that. It would probably dissolve our relationship entirely, Nathaniel. <laughs> Um, and, and so I, I know it's even the, the sheer fact that we're having this conversation, I think, illustrates the point that you and I can cut up about this. Now, here's what you didn't do. You didn't call me immediately after the national championship game and just let me have it about how great Georgia is and how bad Alabama is in football. That would probably be crossing the line. You know that you're actually and let, let's use the language of Hebrews here for a minute. You're not provoking your brother unto love and good deeds. You're provoking him to anger. I mean, you're, and you're doing it on purpose. But we're several months removed from this. I'm not the most emotional person in the world about these things. You and I can chide each other, go back and forth, and it's all in good fun, and it's fine. That's that's perfectly fine. There's some people that you just can't do that. You, there are some people that we, you and I both know you can never at any point in time, it doesn't matter how long ago the game was, you can never chide them, but pick at them about that. They just can't do it. Well, if you know that about a brother or a sister, then why would you provoke them to anger? Just, just leave it alone. We don't need to talk about that. There are others who... That, that's the, that may be the strongest basis of your relationship. I have friends that the first thing we're going to do is pick at each other about a certain football or baseball or basketball affiliation. And yet we also know that that's actually, that actually kind of warms our relationship. We love each other. We care for each other. That's part of how we, that's part of our love language, so to speak. Um, I think those things are fine and good, but this is where still neighbor love governs those things. Some people I can have that conversation with, sometimes I can't. And neighbor love is what determines what I say, don't say, and how we respond.
What can psychology reveal about spiritual formation? Today, we're delighted to have with us Dr. Todd Hall. Dr. Hall is professor of psychology at Rosemead School of Psychology at Biola University. And he serves as a faculty affiliate in the Harvard Human Flourishing Program within the Institute of Quantitative Social Science at Harvard University. Dr. Hall, thank you for being with us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, and your work focuses on uh, relational spirituality. And I, that really resonates with me, and I'm very excited to have this time of conversation with you. Let me set it up just a little bit. It seems that even from the earliest days of the church, there was this uh, school of thought that continues even today, that the way that one is truly spiritual is that he or she isolates, maybe goes into a monastic situation, uh, or is some type of hermit. Uh, my wife and I were in Greece a few years back, and the tour took us to Meteora, which is this group of mountains that go straight up. The bluffs, literally 1,500 feet straight up, and on top of these mountains were various monasteries. On the side of the bluffs were caves five, six, seven hundred feet in the air uh, in which the hermits would live and there would be a, they would lower a rope down where people would put food in a bucket and bring it in that way they could continue to live and they would um, continue there until they died and the way that people found out that they died is because they fell out of the cave and there's their corpse at the bottom of the, and was so striking to me was that our tour guide was quite impressed with this vision of spirituality. And she was talking about how uh, those who were in the monastery were the ones who were truly with God. And even above those who took monastic orders were the ascetics who were the hermits. And that by isolating themselves from everyone else, they were truly able to be spiritual. You seem to be taking a different approach in arguing that spirituality, there is that, that relationships play a fundamental role. So with using that as a foil, yeah, yeah, <laughs> tell us how what, you have a different vision. Tell us what that vision yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting context to, to start with there. I think, I mean, definitely there is something impressive about the effort that went into yeah. the ascetics. And I think when, when we are alone and we isolate, things in our heart can come to the surface that may not have otherwise. And so there's some good things that can happen there. But yes, this, this relational spirituality approach uh, does take a little bit different approach. And you know, in that context that you just described, I would say, I mean, the, the goal of spiritual growth from this relational spirituality perspective is to grow in love for God and others. And the idea is that we are fundamentally relational beings and again that sanctification spiritual growth is all about growing in love for God and others and that that's a relational goal and it's a relational process and i think we see that throughout scripture and psychology really confirms that and i think helps us to flesh that out in terms of what does that actually look like and and how do particularly early relationships impact us and our ability to love uh, not only relationships with others but also our relationship with with God. Um, so so I think the goal is, yeah, to be grow in love for God and others and 
isolating may, may help for short periods of time in certain ways, but probably is not the ultimate goal. Jesus would go out for the night to pray alone, but next day right, he was right. back with the people. What you're saying uh, warms my congregationalist heart. Uh, <laughs> you know, from, from uh, my polity uh, and Baptist polity, we, we see the, the relational aspect as, as essential and fundamental. You mentioned your research. What has your research revealed about spiritual formation? Uh, how do we grow spiritually as individuals? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It's a very big question. <laughs> um, I'll tell you the, the short answer and then try to unpack it a little bit. I would say the short answer is that we are loved into loving is the way I would put that. And maybe for a little bit of context for that question, I think one of the challenges that we often see with people is, you know, in, in the church and all of us is that we want to get immediate results out of our efforts to grow. And we also want to, you know, if, if we're experiencing emotional pain, relational pain, we want that to end, which is normal and natural. But as we all know, we don't often see the immediate results of our efforts to grow, right? And that can be really discouraging and, and demoralizing. So in order to understand and answer this larger question and also this struggle that people often experience, I think we have to understand what deep growth is all about. So I refer to it as deep growth or deep transformation. And, and so the way I look at that is that's really about, it's not about superficial growth on the surface. It's about changing the implicit self. And what I mean by that is this gets to our implicit relational knowledge or gut level knowledge, if you will, about how relationships work for us. And that's based on our early experiences in relationships. And it's continually updated. So it's not just early relational experiences is continually updated. But we develop these subconscious models, if you will, about how relationships work. And, and that's what has to be changed. And that's changed fundamentally, I believe, through new relational experiences with God and with others. You use an expression, implicit self. Can you go ahead and unpack that just a little bit more by what sure. you mean by that, that term? Yes. So that gets to one of the things I talk about in the Relational Spirituality book is two types of knowledge. So there's explicit knowledge or just head knowledge, right, propositional knowledge, and that's important. But there's also another type of knowledge that in some disciplines is called implicit relational knowledge. Or would you call it emotional knowledge? Uh, sure, you could call it emotional knowledge, experiential knowledge. Um, it's sort of an intuitive thing? Intuitive knowledge, yes, okay. right. Uh, there was a uh, Michael Polanyi, if you're familiar with him, mm -hmm. was a yes. chemist turned philosopher of science, talks about tacit knowledge, similar kinds of things. So in psychology and relational psychoanalysis in particular, it's referred to as implicit relational knowledge. And so sometimes I call it gut-level knowledge. So it's, it's a distinct kind of knowledge and, and that's where these subconscious beliefs, if you will, about how relationships work are formed through relational experiences. And they're stored in a similar type of memory. So there's two types of memory, too. Implicit memory is what stores these kind of gut-level experiences. And so that's something we've learned in the last, you know, 30, 40 years from neuroscience is how this memory works. We had sort of evidence of it in clinical psychology, you know, 50, 60 years ago, but we didn't really understand too much about how it works. But now we, we know there is this kind of memory. That's very helpful, despite the fact that it's a little bit fuzzy, it, you know, it, and, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Um, I think the typical pastor, uh, as he or, uh, would talk about seeing his congregation make progress, 
it's very difficult to to use any kind of quantitative tool. And you know, in other words, how in the world do you say, well, uh, I'm seven percent more spiritual than I was. I'm four percent more humble. I'm two percent more holy. Right. I mean, you know, that just seems so. It just seems absurd. Yet you have uh, put together some tools for measuring. Talk to us. What do these tools look like, and how do they work? Sure. Yeah. So yeah, I think those are those are valid concerns that I hear a lot about measuring spirituality. And it is difficult. And of course, we cannot measure that perfectly, especially with quantitative instruments. And I do get that question a lot from pastors and church leaders and and schools that I work with. And, you know, I think the general answer is, you know, as we take a parallel example of intelligence, you can't see intelligence either. Mm. But we've been measuring it for 100 years. (laughs) And we can do it reliably and meaningfully. And I think the same is true for spirituality. It's not perfect. We can't measure anything perfectly quantitatively, but the point is we can get a valid, reliable, meaningful measure that can help people. Really, I think what these tools can do is just help bring some things to the surface that they can then work on. So that's that's my goal with the tool. So one of them is the spiritual transformation inventory. And so that has an individual report and a group report. And so I use that with, with schools, look at sort of the group level aggregate data, how are students doing? But then the individual report provides feedback in a number of different areas. There's 33 different scales. And so based on their score, there's feedback that kind of helps them interpret where they are. And then there are what I call soul projects for each of those where there's a passage to reflect on that asks them to pray through the feedback reflect on this passage and pray through it. And then there's one kind of challenge for the week to do. And I talk about this in the report and I have my own students, you know, take this inventory as well. And uh, so I always explain, you know, the scores are not going to be perfectly accurate, but reflect on them. And and especially if there are scores that feel like they're missing you and that's not where you are, pray about it. Just be open and pray about it. And I, there have been many times where students have come back to me and said, you know, I first read this and I saw this score and it just felt like this is way off. But as I prayed about it and really reflected on it, I started to realize there was some, some truth here. So you mentioned uh, working with students. Do you use these clinical tools in local church settings? Yeah, mostly with Christian colleges and students. Um, and some, some churches use them as well. But yeah, it's mostly with students. I know, uh, as you say, you, you know the, the, the limitations of any kind of, of quantitative measurements, and I sort of made light of it. On the other hand, you know, I grew up in a little Southern Baptist church in which every Sunday, it used to be in Sunday school, there was this checklist about daily Bible reading, inviting people to church, uh, giving, and all of those things. And of course, one could check all those boxes and still not be spiritually healthy. Right. On the other hand... Uh, it's sort of like getting a, a physical. They check your blood pressure. They check your pulse, your sugar level. All of those things are not guarantees that you are are physically healthy, but they can indicate if something's gone wrong. Right. And so it has a place. It has right. as long as one understands the limitations uh, of 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 these kind of measurements. I think that they do, like you say. Uh, show uh, real value. Now, since you know you are a licensed psychologist, the research that you've done, how does that impact your clinical work? Sure. Yeah. Let me answer that in terms of my my own research, but also more broadly research in general in these areas. I think research informs clinical work. 
uh, and my clinical work and clinical work of, of other psychologists informs research. So there's a, a mutual, you know, informing that goes on there. One example would be I mentioned implicit memory earlier, right? Mm-hmm. So, so this is a whole field called affective neuroscience that has developed since the 1950s. And so it's really helped us to understand some things about how people grow and how therapy works that, like I said, we had sort of clues and evidence from the clinical work in, you know, going back to the 1940s and 50s. But this research has really helped us to understand more deeply that there is this implicit kind of memory and we do store experiences with authority figures, parents, important people in our life from very early on. It's it's an emotional, you know, sort of form form of memory, and that impacts and shapes how we experience relationships, how we experience the implicit self, as I mentioned. Um, so, so that informs my clinical work and just understanding that people come to me with this implicit self shaped by all of these experiences that they're bringing with them, bringing into the room, and they're going to play out in the therapy with me. So that's an example of that direction. And then, you know, clinical work also informs research as we learn from, and, and I learn from working with people and seeing the results, seeing, you know, interventions I do that, that work and those that don't work, uh, you know, and then we take that knowledge and then we can sort of test it in, in research. And so that can help us confirm that, oh, okay, this type of intervention wasn't just, it wasn't just a random result that the, it really helped, right? That we're seeing this across the board. So there's a, yeah, the real mutual benefit to that. Yeah. I'm thinking of the old metaphor Tell me if, if it's on track or if it's helpful or unhelpful. The old metaphor of the iceberg where we see right. that which is above, that which we're aware and conscious, and then there's that which is at water level. Uh, and, and then there's that big body of, of the iceberg that's below the surface. Does that metaphor apply to this or is it, is, is it helpful or unhelpful to what you're talking about? Yeah, no, that's a great metaphor. Definitely. There's a lot below the surface in terms of, yeah, these sort of mental models or implicit relational knowledge of how relationships work for us that don't operate in the conscious mind. They're, they're subconscious scripts, if you will. And they can change, but it requires new relational experiences. But that's, that's you know, like I mentioned earlier, that's what we're trying to change. It is below the surface. So I think that's a helpful metaphor. So the typical listener that we have is not a clinical psychologist. Right. Uh, more than likely, they are on staff, are uh, in some type of ministry role in a local church. How can those who are involved in local church work in which they minister to people on a daily basis what can, what can they glean from what you're saying? How can that help uh, those ministering in local churches? Yeah, I, I think part of it, a big part is understanding that everyone has a story of deep attachment needs that shapes their experience of God. So people are not just coming in as blank slates. So understanding that, I think, helps us in individual interactions when we're you know helping people in the church context, whether it be mentoring or spiritual direction or whatever it is, to understand that the way they experience God has been shaped by their past experiences. And so we need to understand those things and help them to have new experiences that sort of correct or, you know, challenge uh, these old experiences um, that oftentimes are painful and lead people to feel that they're not worthy of, of love or feel distant from God, you know, those, those kinds of things. And, and I think the other big point is understanding, again, how growth works, that it comes 
through new relational experiences with God and with others, and that that is also shaped by, you know, explicit knowledge, but that explicit knowledge needs to be translated into the heart, right? It needs to, that we need to help people feel these ideas. So that's part of the way I put it. So um, would, would uh, what you're saying have something to do with why it is that spiritual change seems to be so difficult and slow, that it, that it takes time and many times is almost frustrating? Yes. Um, so because, in other words, we're dealing more than with just the simple knowledge uh, that you know, okay, I've read what it says here in Romans 6 about me being dead to sin. Right. Or I've, I've read what it has to say in First John about, uh, you know, that we've experienced the love of God. And yet, whenever I am talking to this uh, brother or sister in the Lord, they don't seem to be getting that at all. Right, right. It's, Definitely. It's a messy process. It's not a linear process. It, it is confusing and it can be yeah, frustrating can leave people feeling helpless and pastors and people working in the church, it can leave them feeling kind of burned out or helpless too when they don't see people growing. So it does help to understand this is, as you said, it's a long process. It takes time. And oftentimes there are little changes going on beneath the surface that we can't see. And so we have to understand and trust the process that as people are engaging with God and scripture, we still need to do that. And, but being in the body of Christ, right, in the community, having these new experiences, that those are going to form and shape this implicit self. And at some point, there'll be shifts where things click and somebody has a new experience. Um, and it's hard to predict those, but we just have to kind of keep at it and stay stay in process. So it, it sounds like what you're saying is that the tools you've developed identify and, and describe someone's present spiritual uh, condition or walk. Is there anything prescriptive about what you're doing? In other words, does it does it then recommend courses of action or steps to take? Mm-hmm. Uh, does your work go in that direction at all? I think there's some general prescriptions probably. Um, so just thinking about, again, this idea that new relational experiences are what changes. So uh, I think it does suggest that, uh, and also attachment, understanding that there, there are different attachment styles, if you will. And so people with different attachment styles or patterns are going to have different needs. And so um, somebody with, for example, kind of an anxious attachment style, they tend to have had had experiences where caregivers were inconsistent. And so they they need consistent care. They need authority figures in their life who are, you know, consistently there. And people with a more dismissing attachment that where they're kind of shut down emotionally, they have tended, tended to have ex- experienced rejection or just um, parents who were just consistently not available. So they need people who are emotionally engaged, you know, also on a consistent basis. So there's different needs there. So I think it's I think the big picture would just be helping people to get into relationship and process um, their their attachment and creating safe conditions for that. So there's lots of different ways to do that, but I think that would be kind of the general prescription. So how can people follow you or your work? Sure, yeah. So the um, general website is drtodhall.com, so they can see all the things I'm doing there. Uh, spiritualtransformation.org has the, the measures you mentioned and a little more about that. 
uh, as well as the Relational Spirituality book and the Connected Life book. Um, so that would be a place to, to go where they can uh, follow me, sign up for my email newsletter. and yeah. We've been talking to Dr. Todd Hall, professor of psychology uh, at the Rosemead School of Psychology at Biola University. Uh, Dr. Hall, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. And now it's time for On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where professors or staff at Southeastern share what they're reading right now. So today we have with us our own Megan Dickerson. So Megan, what's on your bookshelf right now? Well, the one book that I've spent the most time in in the last year is Cyril of Alexandria's Commentary on John. Cyril was the Bishop of Alexandria, and he is most known for his theological treatises on what it means that Christ is one person with two natures. The natures aren't overly separated. They're not mixed, but he is one person. And so if you've read anything by him, it's probably on the unity of Christ. But his commentary on John is lovely. And what he really did more than these theological treatises was was write exegetical work. He was a pastor and helped in his congregation. And so he was asked to write this commentary for new believers. And the translation that I read is from the Ancient Christian Texts series, and it is translated by David Maxwell in the last 10 years. And so it's very accessible and readable and just lovely. And it will encourage you, um, especially just to think about who Christ is, that he is truly God and truly man, and that that is important. But if you read any of it, read the preface. It's all a whole three pages, so it's not too big of a commitment, and it's just lovely. And he talks about the humility with which he is approaching this work. He was asked to write this work for new believers, but he felt that he couldn't possibly understand all of God's word. And so he relied on the Spirit to work in and through him. And he uses this beautiful picture from the sacrificial system to say that that he feels so weak that instead of the bull that God would require, that he can only bring his flower wet with oil, that he is so poor and weak in his own self. But he says, by faith, I am not weak. And that, as part of this preface and undertaking this commentary, has been so encouraging to me over the last year. I have four kids and... That feels like God has called me to something impossible. The things that I have been tasked with in school or work feel impossible. Sometimes loving my neighbors well feels impossible. And to hear Cyril say that he is bringing his flower wet with oil, that he feels weak, but by faith he is not weak. That I can say, by faith, I am not weak, and I can bring what I have, what the Lord has given me, to the projects that are before me. Um, And it's been a real encouragement, and I think that it will be um, an encouragement to you as well. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, and I did, and I'm sure you did too, give us a five-star rating and review at Apple Podcast and share it with a friend. Have a great week.